0: The hymn that we sang a few minutes ago, We Would Be Building, has a very special and personal significance for me. We Would Be Building, words written by Perd Dietz in the year 1935 for a youth conference that took place in Berea, Kentucky, The theme of the conference was Youth Building a Better World. That was three years before I was born, but it just so happens that my own parents were at that conference, not yet married, but soon to be. They were married the following November. And also present at that conference was a young black youth prodigy named James Farmer, who later was to become a great leader and icon in the civil rights movement, and the leader of the Congress for Racial Equality, known through the years as CORE, C-O-R-E. Farmer, at the end of that conference, asked my parents for a ride to Detroit, because he was going to yet another conference And my parents were returning to their home in West Branch, Michigan, which is up in the northern part of the state, and it seemed appropriate that they could offer him a ride. But because guest homes were for whites only at that time, guest homes, you remember those, they were the the precursor of motels, uh, were for whites only, it meant that my parents, with James Farmer as passenger, would have to drive all night to Detroit and all of a sudden the relevance of that conference for my parents was seen in bold and stark relief as the reality of systemic racism reared its ugly head along the highways and the byways of these United States. Combating racism had been one of the many topics discussed at the conference and certainly constituted a pivotal moment in the continuing development of my parents' idealism. There is no question at all where I get my own idealism. It comes directly from them. But the author of that hymn, Perdits, was someone that later in life I happened to meet in person and I actually have a parchment copy of this hymn signed by him personally, somewhere in the belongings that Carol and I have accumulated over 56 years of marriage. But I tell part of this story, it's more dramatic than I've let on, but I tell the story for several reasons. First, to illustrate that the journey of fighting racism travels a long and seemingly unending road in our country. Second, as my father pointed out to me many times and much to my chagrin and irritation, we have made considerable progress over the years in combating racism. At several, several, several junctures in my life, I have doubted that sincerely. But the third reason for telling the story is to remind us again that we are linked with the rest of the world in that interconnected web of creation and that fighting racism here is also fighting racism around the world. The caption at the bottom of this hymn, which is not here in the bulletin, but is in the hymnal from which this was taken, indicates that this hymn was used around the world and served as an inspiration to young people near and far. I want to press that point rather dramatically in a moment, but first let me invite you to consider the fact that the United States of America has several legacies to its name. Some are fine to share with the rest of the world, some I think we best not. We could make a rather long list, but let's not do that now. I would admit, however, that at the top of any list, there are two legacies, one insidiously evil and the other monumentally great, and that they are bound, they are linked at the hip, metaphorically speaking, the one not being able to exist without the other. The one is rightly referred to as America's original sin, slavery. It is historically the root of our national shame. It is not so much that racism and its close cousins, religious bigotry, and ethnocentrism and xenophobia have not been and do not exist in other places, they certainly do, but that America has raised racism to an art form culminating, of course, in the Civil War and Jim Crow and all of the subtle and not-so-subtle forms of racism that are still with us even today. The other legacy, of course, we have and need to share with others is the legacy of anti-racism and its history is rich and at the same time tragic. It is filled with heroes and heroines with scenes from the mountaintops of victory and the searing pain of the assassin's bullet. It is a history and legacy of great song and of great literature of great marches and protests. It is a history of the arc of justice and love, of the deepest, deepest yearning of the human spirit and the human body to be free. It is a history of sacrifice vicariously given to a cause far, far beyond the arms to defend a nation precisely because it is a cause to defend all of humanity regardless of any earthly circumstance. Its history is an inspiration, not only to all of us in this country, from the civil rights movement to the present day of Black Lives Matter and the almost endless list of movements that have sprung up in our nation over the 400 years of our history, but it is also to the world at large. Rarely, if ever, have most of us thought of the legacy of anti-racism as a gift, let alone a gift to be shared with the world. In the midst of our struggle to garner dignity and freedom for all, how often have we gotten behind the front lines to realize that sojourner truth and John Brown and Harriet Tubman and Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Du Bois and Rosa Parks and King and Malcolm X and the countless millions of other people who have engaged in the struggle for freedom were not only gifts to us, but to the whole world. It is important, I think, and even crucial to see not only that racism is an evil on the one hand, but that Anti-racism is a continuing gift to all of us and to the world as together we struggle for freedom. James Lowen, one of those historians who writes history from the bottom up, from the people who have actually lived it and experienced it firsthand rather than from the perspective of the top-down from the perspective of those who won battles and in, in, uh, victorious in battle and now exercise the power, nails the point precisely. This is what he says. Anti-racism is one of America's great gifts to the world. Its relevance extends beyond race relations. Anti-racism led to a new birth of freedom after the Civil War. Twice, once in each century, the movement for black rights triggered the movement for women's rights. Throughout the world, from South Africa to Northern Ireland, movements of oppressed people continued to use tactics and words borrowed from our abolitionist and civil rights movements. The clandestine early meetings of anti-communists in East Germany were marked by singing, We Shall Overcome. Iranians used nonviolent methods borrowed from Thoreau and Martin Luther King to overthrow their hated Shah. On Ho Chi Minh's desk in Hanoi on the day that he died was a biography of John Brown. Among the heroes whose ideas inspired the students of Tiananmen Square and whose words spilled from their lips was Abraham Lincoln. Indeed, those very words that Carl read a moment ago. Somebody has evidently gone to the trouble to gather statistics on the seemingly mundane fact the number of streets named after Martin Luther King. There are 650 of them in the United States, and probably more now. There are also hundreds of streets and parks and monuments named after him in Australia and France and Germany and India and Israel, in Italy, Senegal, Zambia, to mention just a few of the places around the world. So what appears at first to be a cold and mundane statistic turns out to be a powerful symbol writ large around the world. Jelani Cobb, writing in The New Yorker, points out the, the irony that American foreign policy for the last seven years has been in the hands of a black president as the world looks at this terrible contradiction in our history of slavery and racism on the one hand and the power of anti-racism which brought him to office after hundreds of years of struggle. It is not the office of the presidency, which inspires in this case, it is the fact that a black person is in the office of the presidency. Stop for a moment and think of the great contribution that Negro spirituals have made to freedom movements around the world or the great impact the musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein have had upon oppressed people around the world, South Pacific with its you've got to be carefully taught, Oklahoma, The King and I, all are more simply than entertainment. They pack a message that is heard perhaps more profoundly in other places in the world than right here at home. Many of you know that I am a graduate of Oberlin It's a wonderful school and it's a wonderful town. And the history of that place is phenomenal. It is known as the town that started the Civil War. It is the first college in America that admitted women. It is home to the Underground Railroad for slaves escaping to Canada. It's about 10 miles south of Lake Erie. It is in itself an inspiration around the world for racial justice and has been since its very beginning. In 1888, a young man from South Africa, a black man, John Duby, traveled to Oberlin to study because he had heard about Oberlin and was inspired by Oberlin's story in the struggle against slavery. And after his studies, he returned to South Africa and established the first Zulu language newspaper and founded the Olange Institute, the first secondary school set up by and for indigenous Africans. Its motto was learning and labor, which is the same motto of Oberlin College. John Duby went on to help found and then became the first president of the African National Congress, known now and all around the world as the ANC. A full half-century after its founding, the leader of the ANC in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, ended apartheid and the ANC became the dominant political party through free and democratic elections. It was a long half-century to get to that place, however. For decades, ANC leaders, most notably Mandela, were held in prison on Robben Island. And in that prison, Mandela and other prisoners, inspired by Duby, educated themselves and many of the white prisoners as well John Duby died in 1946, but when Nelson Mandela voted in the first all-race election in South Africa's history, he left his polling booth, which was outside facing Duby's grave at Olange Institute, and he said, Mr. President, I have come to report to you that South Africa is today free. Carl Gregg has led us on an exciting journey for the last month and a half or so. We have visited Martin Luther King and Du Bois and many other people. We have talked about Black Lives Matter. It has been a tour de force. I hope maybe, Carl, that we can publish all of these and get them out in a pamphlet or something, all of the sermons that have been preached on this topic. It has been a tour de force. And although this has been Black History Month, it would seem that so much of what we have been looking at and hearing and reading about is especially timely. The racism of some of our political candidates has been blatant. The dog whistles have not been subtle. We should rightfully, I think, be angry and hurt, and I am This is a time when I might very well argue with my father again and suggest that we haven't made any progress at all in the last 80 years since Dietz wrote that hymn. The rest of the world looks at what is happening right now and is horrified. Yet in my more reflective moments, when I take, take a deep breath and let out the anger and the fear and the hurt, I realize the irony and paradox that is part of our journey. For just when it seems so terrible, looked at from a different perspective through the prism of what, co- what King called the arc of the universe, which he said bend, uh, is, is long and bends toward justice, echoing Theodore Parker, I realize that there is a different picture. We are, for instance, talking about race and racism more than we have in a whole generation. And it is not talk behind the scenes either, but is on prominent display. Hillary Clinton is talking about systemic racism. Most people don't even know what that is. That's progress. We here in Frederick are discussing and debating the place of Roger Taney's statue. This is significant because we want to preserve history on the one hand and tell the truth about the story, but in our growing maturity, we no longer find it appropriate to honor and glorify racism. So how do we remember to tell the story of our past and at the same time lift up for all in the world the fruits of anti-racism. The Confederate flag has come down in many places because of what it represents, but many would suggest that it cannot simply be put in the closet and forgotten for all of the evil and the suffering that it represents, any more than we should ever forget the Holocaust. There is a movement to do away with the state song of Maryland, do you know that song? It's a song that glorifies the Confederacy, disparages in sick and pathological language the Union, calling for vengeance and referring to the North as scum. Governor Hogan doesn't want to change it, but you just wait. (laughs) Justice Scalia has just died, that great defender of 19th century jurisprudence. And in all deference to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's friendship uh, didn't seem to mellow the man very much. And he, along especially with John Roberts, who has fought a long battle on this issue, gutted one of the fundamental tools of anti-racism, the Voting Rights Act. Scalia said in his statement about this act, he said, and this last enactment is referring back to to 2013 when it was approved it was later rejected at this last enactment I quote not a single vote in the Senate against it now he says I don't think that's attributable to the fact that it is much clearer now that we need this I think it is attributable to a phenomenon that is called perpetuation of racial entitlement it's been written about nobody's ever been able to discover where it's been written about but that's what Scalia said Whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through any normal political process. I don't think there is anything to be gained by any senator to vote against continuation of this act. And I'm fairly confident that it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless a court can say it does not comport with the Constitution. And of course, that's precisely what the court finally said. Yes, Justice Scalia, it is difficult to get rid of racial entitlements. The problem is that you were talking about black and minority entitlements. Affirmative white entitlements have existed for almost 400 years in this country. Well, at least for white men they have, not for white women. And we are far from getting rid of those. It's called white privilege. It is the paramount paradigm of our era. Stephen Buckingham, a few weeks ago, leading a discussion in the Bar Talk Room 113, had the group begin to list examples of white privilege. It was a casual exercise, but it was devastating because the list got longer and longer. It's frightening. Justice Scalia and John Roberts, you may not be personal racist, but what you have done results in systemic racism all over again. And then, Justice Scalia, there were your comments in the Texas Affirmative Action case about a slower track for black college students. Do we really need to go there that hardly reaches the level of a dog whistle. There are two big legacies at the top of this list in America, racism and anti-racism. Both legacies stand in front of us and in front of the world constantly. We might wish the former to go away, but it is very unlikely since its roots are so deep. All the more reason that the latter not go away either and that it become ever strengthened and empowered. We have our work cut out for us here in Frederick, in the larger community and indeed in our world, including creating a Supreme Court that indeed does uphold the Constitution as amended Something called the 14th Amendment? You've heard of this Abraham Lincoln guy? It may be that like King, we will never reach that promised land. But for the sake of the world, we need to keep climbing the mountain so that we can look over and be inspired to do more. We are called, as my friend and colleague Perd Dietz, who wrote that hymn, said way back in 1935, to build temples that will bridge the human rift, to dream the dream that hardens into deeds of justice, to love so deeply and profoundly that we heal the brokenness of our collective lives that there might be, at last,
1: freedom for all. Amen. Two final thoughts as we prepare to go. One of my touchstones um, personally in doing anti-racism work is to keep in mind that racism is as real as Wednesday is real. And it's just as much a social construction as Wednesday is a social construction. We know from biology that 99.99% of all human beings are the same at the DNA level. But we have, a, we have developed a history of racial prejudice for contingent historical reasons. And we can choose to dismantle that racial Prejudice. That being said, as we, one of the things you hear back in response to to the assertion black lives matter is that all lives matter. And, And of course all lives matter, but that being said, we learned in the 70s from second wave feminism that saying men was insufficient. Of course, men and women are both human beings, but we learned that it was necessary to say men and women and that male didn't represent both. In the same way that given the history of racial prejudice in this country, it's insufficient to just say all lives matter because it's precisely black lives that haven't mattered. And so in that spirit, if you haven't, if some of you may listen to Krista Tippett on NPR or On Being, you can also podcast her later or listen to it on the website. Incidentally, Krista Tippett will be one of the keynote speakers in Columbus this summer at the UU General Assembly. But she, uh, there was a, they had two Black Lives Matter activists on her program, and I want to share with you just one paragraph in closing that stood out to me from that interview. One of the activists said that for her, Black Lives Matter is a rehumanizing project, realizing more fully that we're all human beings, that we've lived in a place that has allowed us to believe and center only black death. We've forgotten how to imagine black life, and then she went on to talk about how she was a, she was a long-time science fiction fan, but there are ways in which she had also come to see si- many science fiction movies as horror movies, as she realized at a certain point that there were no people of color in most of those science fiction movies. And she came in to think, does your future not have people of color in it? And began to be quite horrified by that, even by utopian science fiction movies. So she continues, our imagination has only allowed for us to understand black people as a dying people. That's been our collective imagination. Someone imagined handcuffs. Someone imagined guns. Someone imagined jail cells. Well, how do we imagine something differently that actually centers on black people and sees them in a future with hope? Let's imagine something different that imagines that black lives matter. So in that spirit, as you go from this place, continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. Know that whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.